Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Does toxic masculinity eventually subside as an addict gets deeper and deeper into recovery? I'm so sad I allowed the emotional abuse that my son has had to go through that I just had no idea about it until now. Unfortunately, I'm just not dealing with sex addiction with my essay husband, but also parenting with him is so hard. I hate that part just as much as I hate addiction in him. So I don't know. I can think of all different kinds of things that toxic masculinity means, but to me, it means sort of having to be a man and feeling like uh, um, women are less than you, cruising every woman who walks down the street, seeing women as objects. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't know what it means to you. Perhaps as a woman, you might have some thoughts about that. Um, but the answer is yes, because part of what we do is really, well, what we do, I don't know everyone else, and certainly in 12-step recovery is really is push humility. I think humility is a really, and it's hard to be in that, you know, I'm a dude place and still have humility. So I think that, I think, I know Tamara would agree that just working on the 12 steps, um, forget uh, therapy and all that, produces a more respectful, humble person if they are committed to the process. Is that? I, I, I really agree. And, and yes, but, and th this person, the anonymous attendee says, you know, as deeper and deeper into recovery. Absolutely. But that's the key deeper and deeper into recovery. So, you know, I, I unfortunately today has been a day of talking to a lot of people where the person isn't really doing much, you know, and change doesn't happen if they're not, you know, like I was talking to a, a really, not just Dr. Rob, but a really skilled therapist that I refer lots of people to. And, and this person was sharing, it's another doctor um, in the field. And, and she was sharing how, you know, uh, uh, you know, clients are, you know, barely doing anything. Well, then they're not seeing any changes. And guess what? Then the partner is under distress as well. So, so leaning into, and I agree with Dr. Rob, you know, particularly steps four through nine, that is the meat of the program. That is where we start to make those shifts. You know, we find our humility, but that's not, you know, it, it, we, Humility is a clear and accurate portrayal of who we are, understanding who we are. We're not, oh, I'm so horrible or I'm so wonderful. It's like um, uh, being right-sized. That's, yeah, you know, that's right, the goal. Right size. Yeah, so, yeah, so, and, and we can learn it and, you know, we're not going to do it perfectly, but the deeper, as you say, the deeper and deeper into recovery, the more that person will show up and the less the unright-sized person will show up, so... Okay, yeah, I, I, I wanted Go to ahead. just quickly respond to, um, I was just talking to a couple that I think every couple and especially spouses, when they begin to realize the, the neglect, the distancing, the unavailability, you know, it's very hard to look at your kids and say that they were affected by this and they were, you know, there's not much you can really do about that. So, but it is painful and you do have to co-parent. Um, and again, also I say, if there's humility about being a parent, um, you know, and always being a student, I think that that can be fixed um, over time. 
So the next question is from the 645. First of all, thank you for all these great Q&As. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the processes in the brain and behavioral process addictions. Thank you. Yeah, sure. I mean, so the reason we call them process addictions is because someone isn't addicted to the uh, the sex. They're not addicted to the gambling. Those are the endpoints like a carrot that drive them forward. People who are process addicted, they're literally addicted to the whole process, to the fantasy, to the thinking, to the looking, to the getting ready, to the carrying out. The good news, by the way, is that if you look at the whole process, the shortest piece is the acting out, which gives clients or people, I'm thinking of our clients now, gives people a lot of opportunities to say, oh, I'm in this fantasy. What do I do? Oh, I'm driving by this house. What do I do? So the longer time they have is a good thing. But um, but people who are in process addictions, they, are, uh, they lose themselves before they've even, actually, I would say that all addicts, um, what do I want to say? Uh, all addicts have the same brain process going on with us, which is we use a very primitive part of our brain and fantasy to tolerate things that have been intolerable when we were younger and are still emotionally intolerable now. And whether you turn to alcohol or drugs or gambling or gaming or food or sex, the process in the brain of the excitement, the intensity, the adrenaline, the endorphins, what's happening in the brain is very, very similar. Um, it's just that with a drug addict, you have an ongoing experience after you do the whole process. And with the process addiction, addicted people, it's like it ends when the sex is over. It ends when you run out of money. But the brain, the brain doesn't see it as any different. It is an escapist uh, neurobiological process that under stress escalates and requires a lifetime of awareness. Um, so I do think it's a brain problem um, for sure. And it comes about because our brains really don't form in the way they should when we're very, very young. And our, our neurons and the way our brain is linking up and growing um, does that in relationship to challenging upbringing. And so we look at the world differently than healthy people do. Um, and that's a lifelong challenge because of the way the brain evolved. Um, yeah. Tammy, you want to answer that? Uh, the only thing the I, I like you, you, um, you, you know, you adapted it to any form of addiction because and i really do whether it's chemical or any form of behavioral it, it still is doing the same thing for us you know i i often say alcoholism isn't because alcohol tastes so great it's because it's taking us away and escaping from everything else just like you know every, like sex porn eating whatever you know well gaming. it's the same with us i mean so many sex addicts will walk into a situation and they'll have sex with someone they're not attracted to oh they'll have sex experience they don't feel safe but they've already gotten so excited emotionally about it that that it's like a, a rock rolling downhill they just sort of end up going forward uh, whether they feel good about it or not so the next one is, uh, my question is two parts. What are the differences in behaviors between a porn addict who's stressed but sober a one and a half plus years of active recovery, CSAT and 12-step, et cetera, and a porn addict who has relapsed? Are they similar? Hmm. Can you, before we come on the next one, do you want to speak to that, Tammy? I'm, I'm still not quite sure I, well, I understand, I, but I, I want to. So here's what I'm reading into this. To me, this is, you know, is someone who is in active recovery, who, who really is, who's working a program, has a 12-step CSAT, et cetera, right. if they're stressed, will they look like a porn addict who has relapsed? And to me, I would say no. But, um, you know, there would be um, 
I could see well, how having a short fuse or, you know, having to make amends for something, you know, but, but, um, but if somebody is, is going offline and self-soothing with a relapse, that to me would look different than somebody who's going, I need to go call my sponsor. Like I'm really stressed out. I need to go do self-care. I need to go do program. I need to do something different. So I would assume that you would see a difference. Do you, I mean, maybe you have different thoughts. No, I fully agree, Tammy. In fact, I would take it a step further, which is uh, I think someone who is in recovery will tell you, I'm struggling. I had a slip. I'm having a hard time. I know I look a little different today. That's because. So one of the things I think um, between someone who's stressed but sober versus someone who's relapsed is how they communicate with you and how honest, how how they appear to be. Someone who's had a slip should say, listen, you know, I really need to tell you this. It's going to be a bad evening, but I'm struggling with this. I'm working on it. Someone who is acting out and in relapse may not ever tell you. And I think that is the difference. Um, uh, pro, so pro-dependence doesn't mean to put up with everything that you're dealing with. I haven't read um, that part yet. Do you want me to read oh, it? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you no, had no, no. Go ahead. No, no, no. So the second part is how can I, as a spouse, practice pro-dependence in both scenarios? What if I'm unsure, but he's denying a relapse? So pro-dependence looks at these issues a little differently. Pro-dependence simply says you have made a decision to be with this person because you love them and you want things to work out and you care about them. You're not in this situation because your mother did this and your father did that. And you have to explore your history and figure out why you're with them and how you're with them. And we're just not interested in that part. We're interested in how, um, how loyal you've been, how committed you've been and how hurt you've been as a result of that. Um, so to me, um, I can love someone, but not trust them. I can love someone and say, I don't, I don't, think you're sober. And I feel um, I can choose to stay with them, you know, because that would be very loving. Or maybe the most loving thing I can do is set a boundary and take care of myself. Prodependence is about not blaming myself, not taking responsibility and not having to examine myself when someone else I care about screws up. Now, it doesn't mean I stay in an unsafe situation. It doesn't mean that I move, you know, it doesn't mean I'll always know when a healthy situation is there. But I, I, absolutely cannot take responsibility or blame myself or someone else's behavior. And the only reason I'm here is because I love them and I care about them and I have hope. And that could happen in either scenario. So uh, Tammy, do you have a different answer or something that might help with that? Now I, I, I always go to trust your gut. I mean, like what an addict says, unfortunately, particularly, you know, if they're, if they have relapsed, if they're not on a recovery path is, not trustworthy, what their actions are doing, what they're doing. If he's, I'm saying he um, is struggling, then what, oh yeah, he says he's denying it. So if he is struggling, then it's, you lean into more help. You see your CSAT twice a week. You call your sponsor every day. You are doing our drop-in groups that are free. He, hopefully he's here on this, you know, webinar tonight. So um, if you are not seeing, you know, uh, more, more, and I've shared this before in a webinar, COVID was horrible for me. Guess what? I did more 12 step. I did more of my recovery program. I had to, you know, that was how, like, I took care of myself and made sure I wasn't having to make amends all over the place. It was like, I needed to lean into my recovery. So if I'm stressed, I lean like, I don't have time not to do my recovery program. I have to make that a priority. I can't set it aside and go, oh, I'm busy. I'm stressed, you know? 
you know, work as much as I love this work, like I still need to take care of myself, you know? So, um, so that to me would be, yeah, but, but no, that's really key though, is like, you know, so, and as far as prodependence, unfortunately, there's a perception out there is prodependence is you stay with your spouse, you know, and love them no matter what. And uh, Dr. Rob's explanation was, was really key. Um, so please hear that. It's the lens at which you know, we're looking at partners. We're not pathologizing going, you're an enabler, you're codependent, you're part of the problem. You love somebody who's struggling, but that does not mean you sacrifice yourself. And I want to add to that because um, I just revised the, well, my publisher and I revised the original Prodependence, which was written in 2018. And here we are, 2022. You're pointing at the sky, Tammy, but we appreciate it. Thank you. It has the word myth in it. And one of the reasons that I revised it, well, there's two. One is that there's an academic version that came out for therapists, and, and it it really tells them how to do this work. Thank you, Tammy. Um, do you have the Wizard of Oz handy? Um, no. Okay. So um, once I'd written the book for professionals, I realized that there were some parts missing to the original book. And one of the pieces was missing that I've heard people say is, well, does this mean I just need to stay around where there's abuse? So the new book has a whole chapter on how to deal with abuse and what is abuse and what is codependence and relationship to abuse and, you know, and calling out what you do if you're being, you know, all of that kind of stuff, because it really wasn't well written in the first book. So uh, it is in the new book, but in answer to your question, um, parent dependence is not about staying around for any kind of harm. It's more about loving yourself for having stayed. That That's really what it's about. Well said. I like that. I'll remember that one. Thank you. I, okay. I might write that down sometime. I, I know. Okay. So um, we have one more question from last week. I see it. Does recovery take a longer period of time depending on the length of time that someone has been acting out? You know what, my Great automatic rant, yeah, so here, recovery is a lifelong journey. So my, and this does not, I don't want this to sound snarky at all, but my my answer is um, if you spent more time acting out, you have less time to be on a recovery path. So I don't know, like, but but does, so I, I suspect the question is, does it, is it harder to get into a solid recovery program if you've been doing the acting out longer. And I honestly don't know. I see a lot of people that have been doing it for decades and they do really well. I think it really is more about what are you willing to do and how committed you are to your recovery program. You know, if you, if you've only been acting out, let's pretend for, you know, three years, but you are only gonna maybe see a therapist once in a while. And I'm not really going to go to those meetings because I don't like them guess what? You're not going to change. If you've been acting out for decades and you go, I really need to change and I want to do that. And you lean into your recovery program. It's transformative. So thoughts. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because I was talking to a gentleman today who was in his sixties about joining us at seeking integrity for treatment. And he should, in my opinion. Um, and what we're talking about was, you know, I mean, it's just what Tammy said, which I really appreciated. I mean, one is motivation. And whether I'm 25 or 55, I can I will get further with being committed to the to the change and doing whatever I can to make a change, no matter how old I am. Um, and what she said is also true, which is, you know, I was fortunate enough to enter the rooms of recovery at 26, and I'm now a lot older than that. <laughs> and so I have had the advantage of having gotten some recovery early on then going to therapy for many many years and staying in so i have a lot more information a lot more insight a lot more self-awareness 
right, Tammy? Then, mm -hmm. then does someone who walks in, now the gentleman I was talking to today is 60 something. Yes, he can get recovery. Yes, he can grow. But um, emotional growth as a human being, becoming more compassionate, more empathic, more, uh, more reflective, more, more humble, that takes more time. You know, that takes more time in 12 step that takes more time, meaning I can stop the acting out if I really am focused and I do the right things, but becoming a better person that takes longer. And so, you know, depending on how troubled that person is, and you have to understand, like, we're not just broken in this area, we're broken in every area, you know, we're not the, we don't have our shit together in our brains. And so some people may latch on to recovery and very quickly get through that process and start to grow other people it can take years before they just get the recovery part down so in some ways it really is individual um, but i will say that someone who's older doesn't have the luxury of time to say well i'm going to work on this for 20 years one of the reasons that I'll, i make a number of referrals to seeking integrity is because someone says well i want to start therapy and this and that but they're 64 years old and you know it's like well i understand that but how much time do you have to be in therapy, you know, and how long do you want to start? One of the reasons I recommend someone comes for three, four weeks is get a head start, you know, do some of the work you haven't been able to do and then launch into what your life will be about. And I will say also just to say it, that we do really great treatment, but that's not where the rubber hits the road. It's when they go, when you go home, what are you doing with the work that you learned about? How committed are you over the long term? We can lay out a path, but, whether people are going to follow it or not is up to them. So. Yes, but but they have a a really good plan. They have the and path. The, yeah, well, and and the support to be successful. So it absolutely is. You know, unfortunately, I've heard of people that have been in treatment and then they go home and they're resting from their treatment experience. And I was like, that is a really poor choice. You know. So well, actually, but, if we're going to go there, we have clients who come to treatment and they say, well. You know, what I've planned when I get out is to go for a vacation in Bahamas for at least three weeks because treatment will have been hard. And I'm like, well, actually, you need to go home and start going to meetings and go to see a yeah. therapist. And um, treatment is not something you have to get a vacation from after. It's something you have to get to work on after. Yes, but anyway, yes. let's keep going. We got lots okay, of questions. So now we've got. So and you should. Can you can you see all it. of them? OK, I'm here. so it starts with 601. Can you see that one? I'm starting early. Hi, Tammy. Grateful. Can you see that one? I no, you can't. Five. I no, have, well, gonna... We're on a different time zone. So I have six for your time, 607, 618, okay. and 621. I just put it in. The, so this 01, I'm starting early. Hi, Tammy. Grateful for all you do. My question, SA husband has disclosed exhibitionist behaviors, exposing himself in public parks for a couple of decades, mm. two to three times per month. Is this type of paraphilia treatable? How does a couple work through this? I am shocked and not sure how to take this new information. I, I hear you. So. Um, and I feel for you because, yeah. and you haven't used this word, but your husband's a sex offender. I mean, when you show people things that they didn't ask to see and you don't have their consent, consent is how you define offending. Now he's a low level offender. This isn't someone who's putting their hands on someone but they will and can get arrested for their behavior because it's not legal and it's not consensual. So it is an offending behavior. Um, and sadly, in my experience, this is one of the most difficult to treat. It is so deeply embedded in these per people's both exhibition and voyeurism are probably, I don't know what Tamara would say, but I think they're two of the most difficult compulsive sexual behaviors to, to manage because in some ways it's part of, 
what turns the person on period. It's not just something that's fun for them to do occasionally. It's like some people are into leather, some people are into lace, some people, you know, those are fetishes. For them, it's um, an arousal process. It's not just, um, I'm going to say this, it's not just something they do, like I see sex workers, but now in recovery, I don't, or I look at porn and now I don't. It's part of what turns them on. Um, and so eliminating that is harder because it it is a primary part of their arousal of what arouses them. So they may stop that behavior, but that particular behavior will still be arousing to them. And that makes it harder to stop. So yes, absolutely, it is treatable, but it is never cured. It is never fixed. And it requires, I think, a very consistent attention, very consistent. This is someone who needs to check in every day. You know, I, I have to tell you an exhibitionism story, Tammy. This is not amusing, but it was the right thing to do. Do you remember Elizabeth Griffin? Yes. She told me this story. So um, I worked in the, well, my colleague of mine worked with an offender who was an exhibitionist and he'd been arrested once. And what he would do is he'd go into the park and go jogging and he wouldn't wear underwear or whatever it was. And that wasn't good for him. And it was very compulsive. So we had an agreement. And that agreement was if he found himself, because sometimes addicts wake up and they're like, oh, I'm about to do the wrong thing. If he found himself with the wrong clothes on in his car, this is true. He had to get out of his car, park it on the side of the road and take his keys and throw them in the sewer. Because then he couldn't get to the park and then he couldn't go. And then he had something he had to deal with. And, you know, that may sound like the time. I just look like, really? Well, yeah, I got to tell like, you, wow. it kept him out of the park in his underwear. So if he had to lose some keys or take a couple hours calling a AAA or whatever, it was better for him. And he did it because, you know, it's better than getting arrested. It's better than destroying your all, all whole life. It's better than victimizing other people. So the lengths to which someone who is committed to change will go can be, a, you know, how do I say this? Can be more extreme and more surprising than you might think. But this is what motivation is. That man was not going to go and do that again. And he agreed that this is what he was going to do come hell or high water. And that is what he did. And therefore he, and by the way, once you throw your keys in the sewer a couple of times, it really dis discourages you from con continuing to go and do this. Cause once you've dealt with that a few times, you don't want to call AAA one more time. So yeah. Um, yeah. Tammy, do you have thoughts about this as well? well? Well, I do. So I want to go back to the, you know, I'm, I am shocked. Um, and, and I can imagine that I, I hope he takes this seriously. I hope you do as well, but I hope he does because like Dr. Rob is right. This is arrestable. This is makes the news. If you have children, guess what? You know, like, I mean, it, like it's just, it, there, it, it needs to be attended to. So um, if you need resources, Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com. Um, I'll do my best to help you find the right help and support. By the way, okay. I, I would add to that because Tammy touched on something that I thought was so important. I would say to this person, you know, sex addict husband, a sex offender husband, by the way, I would say, I just want you to realize what this is going to cost us. You know, if people catch you in the neighborhood, no one is going to ever bring their kids over to our house. You know, um, you will probably, if you get arrested, you're probably going to lose your job. You know, um, if it's with a neighbor, how are we ever going to live there again? I've had people had to move because of, they were doing things in the neighborhood, looking in windows, whatever. And once they were found out, they couldn't live there anymore. So part, I think, of healing is to take a good look at what the reality of your consequences might be 
And I think you're thinking about, do I want to leave me and my kids in a situation, if you have kids where this might happen, you know, you might set some boundaries that say, if this happens, I need to do this for myself and my family. I, if the police are going to come knocking, I don't want to be here when they answer, you know? And so this needs a lot of boundaries, a lot of structure, because it is so compulsive. Um, yeah, good question. And I just had this other thought, Dr. Robin, um, but like, if this is what he's told you, you know, I have concern that there's more because addicts only fess up with certain things. So, so I want you to hear me clearly get support for you. I'm glad you're here, but get support for oh. you. Thoughts? Tammy, can you put in safersociety.org? They're an organization for people who are in, who are, are, are in a primary relationship with a sex offender. This could be an offender who's your child, an offender who's your husband, an offender who's your wife. And they also talk about, you know, the resources for offender, both of the offenders and the legal system. It's just a, a really wonderful nonprofit. It's been around a long time. And you can probably get some information about what is a spouse to do in this circumstance? Or is there a group I can go to in the, you know, something like that. I, a safer society is wonderful. I would encourage it. Um, there's also a group called ATSA, A-T-S-A, the, uh, Tammy, what is ATSA? No, it's not ATSA. It's, what is the offender one? Um, I think it is. Um, uh, it is ATSA. Yeah, yeah. for sex, offense, uh, sex uh, I'll look it up. ATSA. Yeah, I'll look it up. Right. So, These are organizations yeah. that are meant for people who treat offenders, involved with offenders, um, you know, um, the, the uh, legal system. You know, these are resources. And they're not easy to find. So I think uh, check them out, see what you what you see there. Okay. So the next question, I will look up the ATSA stuff because I think here it is. So is it possible to work 12-step for substance and sex at the same time? Should one work um, before the other? Is it okay to have two different sponsors for each issue? Well, I want to say one thing about that, and then I'm going to talk it back to Tammy, which is... Um, there's a simple answer to this, but it's not a simple answer. The, the, the first answer that comes to my mind, and this is how we do things in order, is if you are drinking and using, you're never going to be able to have sobriety in a behavior because once I'm a little, in, once I've had a couple of drinks or a little bit of this or that, suddenly it doesn't seem like such a big deal to go do this. And all of my commitments and boundaries, and they all get a little blurry because I'm a little loaded. And so when people are using, it's near impossible to deal with a behavior or process addiction. Now, there are some people where they're paired. I mean, this is what we do in treatment. We actually, one of the populations we treat is people who are, com I mean, that we treat specifically are people who combine drugs and sex. There are lots of things to be said about that, um, meaning we'll, they come from different places. They can be acted out in different ways. For example, I'm a, every, I just talked to someone who did this. Every time I drink, I act out. Then I know other people, they go see sex workers and that's where the drugs are or that's where the alcohol is. So it can work forwards and back, backwards and forwards. Yes, but the substance has to be dealt with primarily. But I'll tell you what, if I was acting out sexually and I hated myself, I might keep drinking. So yes, I do think you can go to AA and you can go to SAA and you can work the steps with different people. Or maybe in one group, you say, I have a sponsor. In the other group, it's like, I'm going to meet with a couple of guys every week when, you know, there are different ways to do it, but yeah, you need to have personal involvement in both programs with people that you've gotten to know and who are going to support you. Um, what do you think, Tammy? It's a good question for you. It is. And I love when people do a three circle plan across all forms of their acting out. And so they have, 
So they have all of it on the radar. I think it's really important. You know, what, what are, what are my triggers for, you know, for using substances? What are my triggers for sex? And like Dr. Rob said, you know, forwards or backwards paired, however it is, what is the healthy stuff for me to do? Um, I think it's important to have a person that really knows you. Um, so if you, if you are, I, I really like this idea of having one primary sponsor who gets it. And lots of people in the, in the 12 steps are more than one addicted. In fact, I, I, you know, I've had this before where um, I pulled out my big book because I was, you know, I can be that way. But, but, you know, somebody was like, they, their spouse, like going to AA, because they didn't really want to do the S group stuff. And I said, if he did a four step, the four step talks about our sexual behaviors, it was written in AA. You know, I'm not telling secrets. Bill W. had a huge issue with, you know, his sexual acting out. So it's one of those things where it has to be addressed across all forms of our problematic behavior, whatever that is. I mentioned earlier, gaming, food, gambling, whatever it is. You know, if we're going, well, I'm going to hang on to this one. We're a non-smoke, non-vape facility. There's a reason because that keeps that dopamine, you know, going. We, you know, Dr. David talks about it. I think you're nine times more likely to relapse on anything if you're doing that type of stuff. So we want to give everybody the best chance at recovery. So, so I agree, you, you know, going to an S group while you're drunk, you know, would not make sense. So, so there has to be some sort of, you know, commitment with that. And it, and it's hard to stop, you know, all the behaviors, but, but the reward for doing it and getting the support, if, if you have enough support, you can, you can be successful across you know, all the problematic behaviors. And that's really where, you know, we become happy, joyous, and free. It's a 12-step thing. Happy, joyous, and free is when we're not just switching to another form of problematic behavior. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.